0: would turn with me or join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue to make our way uh, through this uh, first letter that was written to the church in Thessalonica uh, from Paul. And we come today to chapter 4, and we will look at the entire chapter, verses 1 uh, through 18. Would you do this with me? Would you stand as we honor uh, the reading of God's word uh, together? Uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse one says, Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to walk, uh, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Lord, we ask in these moments that you would lead us and guide us according to what is truth, that we would abide together in your word. Lord, there are many distractions that surround us, even this very morning. And so, Lord, I pray in these next few moments that you would allow us, Lord, to focus our attention and our thoughts and our affections on your word, that you would speak from your word before us and your spirit within us, Lord, move in our midst. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you, and it's in your Son's holy name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, We come this morning in this first letter to the church in Thessalonica to the climax of the letter. Uh, These first three chapters that we've been walking through over the last several weeks have been leading up to this Point. This is the height of the letter, so I want us to just consider for a moment where we have come from in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, there have been several themes that have run throughout the first three chapters of this book, and I hope you've noticed them. One of them is, is suffering and how uh, the, the gospel came to the church in Thessalonica through suffering, in the midst of suffering, and can, has continued uh, in their life up to the point that Paul writes this letter to them, and they have uh, suffered well. This is most certainly a theme that runs throughout uh, all of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, There are two two particular things, though, that I want us to notice that I hope that you have have picked up on as we've looked at these first three three chapters, uh, two qualities of the Christian life that have been present throughout this letter so far, and that is love and holiness. These two attributes of the Christian life have, have run side by side, driving the text of these first three chapters, and they come here to verse four and uh, chapter four, and they meet again. Uh, this love, this affection that we've talked about so much in this letter that not only uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy had for the church, but that the church had for them that had manifested itself in their labor of love and their their love that was reported to Paul from Timothy. They are thriving in this affection, this love that they have for one another as the church. The the holiness that we see here, that in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that they came to them in holy and righteous and blameless lives. Their conduct toward them was not in the ways of the world, but being set apart for them. And we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, as we noticed last week, uh, or chapter uh, 3, verse 13, how he wanted them to continue to grow in this holiness. These two things, love and holiness, have been upheld, though, by a subtle theme that we've heard and touched on a little bit in these first three chapters, but really, love and holiness are in a, a collision course with this final theme, and that is the coming of Christ, we saw this in chapter 1, verse 10, where they're waiting for the sun. We see in chapter 2, verse 19, that Jesus is coming. And then the very last thing that we looked at last week in chapter 3, verse 13, is there at the end of verse 13, at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He sees that they are thriving in their walk. And it's manifesting itself in their love and in their holiness. And all through this, he's pointing them to the coming of Christ. And we'll see why that's important here in a moment. And so the question then becomes, if they are thriving, if they are succeeding, with a view of Christ's return, how are they to continue to live? And Paul answers that for us right away in very simple terms in verses 1 and 2. He says there to them in verse 1 that uh, they have come to them, and he's urging them in the Lord as you received. uh, Verse 2, he says, you know what instructions we've given you, and it it says there in verse 1 how you ought to walk and to please God. So in other words, we came to you with the gospel, we preached Christ, you were saved, we discipled you, we showed you how to walk and please God in this life. You're doing that really well. He says that as well in verse 1, just as you are doing... And then notice the key to the entire chapter, what he says at the end of verse 1. In light of all of that, he says this, do so more and more. The Christian life is one of constant growth. We touched on this last week, that we never stop growing and becoming more like Jesus this side of heaven. This is what we call sanctification. We've talked about this several times together on Sunday mornings, this idea of the Christian life is becoming more and more like Jesus. And Paul does us a great service by making it really simple and really plain for us there in these three words, more and more. If you want to know what the Christian life is like, summed up in three words, it is that more and more, that we are growing more and more into Christ's likeness in this life. No matter how old we are or how long we've been a Christian, how close we are to the end of our days, we will spend all of our days in expectation of Jesus' return, striving to look more and more like our master. And so... In chapter 4, we see holiness and love presented to us again with a view of Christ's coming. So I want us to consider that as we look at chapter 4. And so first, he addresses what we've already talked about is their holiness. We see this in verses 3 through 8, that he has a desire for them to grow more and more in their holiness. And again, verse 3, Paul makes it very simple and clear for us what his desire is and what the message is when he says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. I cannot tell you how many times people come to me as a pastor and they say, pastor, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Maybe you've come here today seeking that answer. What is God's will for my life? And Paul answers it for us. God's will for your life, uh, believer, is to look more like Jesus. That's it. Now, this word sanctification here that is in verse 3 is the same word in the Greek for holiness in verse 4 and in verse 7. So you could say there in verse 3, this is the will of God, your holiness, believer. That you be set apart for God in this world. That word holiness literally means set apart. To consecrate or dedicate something to God. And for those of us who are in Christ, all of our life in its entirety should be a dedication to God. Being set apart for God and his glory in this world. Now, what does the world mean? look like if we're to be set apart from it well he helps us out there the last part of verse 3 he says that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the gentiles who do not know god that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter this list that he gives us to describe what we are to abstain from there in verse 3 all has to do with the very first thing that he mentioned, sexual immorality. He says, abstain, believer, from all forms of sexual immorality. Verse 4, when he says, control his own body, it's talking about passions of lust, controlling our sexual desires, that we would ha- view the, the, the sexuality that we have in holiness and honor as God sees it, not as the world sees it. The word passion there in verse 5 means passions of lust. And so he says, don't abide in the passionate lust of the lustful world as the Gentiles do. And so we have this comparison of, of the world and those of us who are in Christ. And so what is it that the world looks like? Well, if we take what he says here, this is what the world looks like. The world is sexually immoral. No control over their sexual desires, no value of sexual purity, full of sexual passion and lust. But for Christ's people, they are to be sexually pure, have control over their sexual desires, value sexual purity, and not be overwhelmed by sexual passions. And in particular, in regards to how we view one another, verse 6 there, it says that no one may transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And so the clear defining mark of worldliness, the the chief marker of worldliness is sexual impurity. So the marker of the believer in holiness should be sexual purity. And it can be no other way This is how God has ordained it to be. Notice the heightened sense of warning here that he says. He says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We will answer to the Lord in regards to sexual immorality. And then he says there at the end, we have already told you about this, Thessalonica. We've solemnly warned you of the magnitude of this. And we sense the magnitude in verse 8 where he says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you? This type of fornication and lust and sexual impurity is against God and has no place among the people of God. And so, to make the point very simple and clear, if we're to sum up verses three through eight in one sentence, it's verse seven. Here it is God has not called us, brothers and sisters, for impurity, He has called us to holiness. The church in Thessalonica was surrounded by sexual immorality. Thessalonica, in its day, was a melting pot of people from all over the world—people from different backgrounds and traditions, races, religions, beliefs, worldviews—and it had its its grand seaport in the south and the highway in the north that could run to the entire Roman Empire and people had gathered there and what rose to the top of this melting pot was sexual immorality. Scholars believe that in the streets of Thessalonica in this day as travelers gathered there from around the world that promiscuity was sold in the streets for anyone who wanted to partake freely it was a dark and sinful and wretched city and sexual immorality rose to the top and so whether it is sodom and gomorrah in its day or thessalonica in its day or san antonio texas today the chief marker of immorality, is that of sexual immorality, defiance of God. And we don't have to look, look hard to see it. Just social media, commercials during a baseball game, billboards on the side of the highway, our world is saturated by sexual immorality, and yet Paul tells the believer what in verse three? Abstain from it. Abstain from it. Have nothing to do with these things. He told the church in in Ephesus, and Ephesians, in regard to this issue, don't even let it be named among you. This is a serious command, a serious, solemn warning for us today as the church. Christian, if you are here today and you find yourself in a season of bondage, to sexual immorality in in all of its forms, whatever it might be, fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, whatever it might be, dear brother, dear sister, repent today. Turn from your sin and look to Christ anew today. Confess your sin. Bring it into the light of the gospel in a heart of contrition Not because you are caught, but because you are broken over the reality of your sin before a holy God. Repent, confess, and then kill it. Cut it off at the source. Today. Do not wait. Do not linger. Whatever it is, whoever it is, wherever it manifests itself, whenever it manifests itself, cut it off, kill it, and then abstain from it. And I want you to heed the solemn warning of Paul in verse 8. This is, this is scripture. That if we disregard the reality of sexual immorality in our lives, there is potential that we do not even possess the Holy Spirit. Dear friend, test yourself to see if you're in the faith today. If you're here and you are struggling with what Satan and the culture is feeding you in this idea that there is freedom and liberty to be found in identifying your own sexuality, I want to plead with you today to know this, that there is no freedom and there is no liberty to be found in bondage to the flesh. That true freedom and liberty and hope and peace and joy and purpose in this life is found in Christ alone. Look to him today. Look to Christ today. His ways are better. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he is the one who set the standard for sexuality in the garden. And friend, it is clear how we are to live in this world. Submit to Christ and Christ alone. He is good. He is better. The lie the world wants to feed you will not sustain you. Turn to Christ. So sanctification is marked by holiness. But sanctification is also marked by this sister friend that we see here in 1 Thessalonians is marked by love. So not only does he want them to grow in holiness, but he wants them to grow in their love. We see this in verses 9 through 12. He says, Turn your attention, Thessalonica, to brotherly love. This is a a Greek word we all know. This is the word Philadelphia. The the city in Pennsylvania is known as the city of brotherly love. This is a a Bible word, the affection that we have for fellow believers that we talked about so much last week that binds us together, that gospel unity, that gospel affection that we share. He says, look to it, Thessalonica, and then notice what he says to them in verse 9. You have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by god to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout macedonia what an encouragement paul writes to them on second hand information from timothy and he says you guys are doing really well in the area of love that's profound Of all the churches that Paul wrote to, Thessalonica is the one who has mastered love, if you will. And yet, to drive home the point this morning, what does he say to them in light of this? You're doing really well at this. You have mastered love, Thessalonica. What does he say at the end of verse 10? But we urge you, brothers, to do what? Do this more and more. Again, we never graduate from the gospel. We never stop growing more and more into the image of Christ. And if you didn't already understand it, maybe you can see it here. When he says you're, you're thriving in this particular area, do so more and more. What does that look like? Well, luckily for us, Paul helps the church in Thessalonica out with three practical things. There in verse 11, he says, If you want to grow more and more in love, here's what you need to do. He says, aspire, verse 11, or let it be your goal to do these three things. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. What does this mean? Let's look at each of these individually real quick. First one, uh, he, he says there, um, to live quietly or to live a quiet life if you turn over to 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3 we get an insight into an issue that's happening there in the church in Thessalonica that helps us understand what he means here by live a quiet life 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11 he says for we hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work but busybodies The church in Thessalonica has a busybody problem. So look what he says in verse 12. Now now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work, what? Quietly. And to earn their own living. And so he's saying to them, they're very practically, very hands-on, kind of in your face, depending on what your, your personality is, don't be a busybody. The second one there, he says, he says, mind your own affairs or take care of your stuff, or as my mama would say growing up, mind your own business. Don't meddle in other people's affairs, it's not loving. The final one he says there is work with your hands or be self sufficient. The church would have translated this very literally, meaning that they were to take care of their own things, to be self sufficient. That those in the church who were capable of working should work and not take advantage of the generosity of the church. Now, all three of those things are communicating the same idea. As we strive to love one another as the church, it's very practical, very hands-on, and we are seeking to maintain a spirit and bond of peace And so if we could sum it up in just one little phrase in modern terms, we could say this, stay in your lane. Now, pause. That does not mean that we do not engage our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them in the faith, to look to edify one another. That's not what he's saying. And One commentator helps us out by saying this. He said, Paul does not mean that everyone shall mind his own business in such a way "...as that each one should live apart, having no care for others, but has merely in view to correct an idle levity which makes men noisy bustlers in public who ought to lead a quiet life in their own houses." And so when he says there, be dependent on no one, he's not saying have a disregard for others, to go buy a plot of land out in the middle of the woods and and never talk to anybody else. Rather, Paul is emphasizing the necessity of personal responsibility when it comes to loving one another. Not only are there implications for inside the church, but there's implications for To those outside the church, verse 12, he says that you may walk properly before outsiders. We represent Christ in this world as his church, as his bride. We are his representatives here. And this goes back to our holiness, that we are to be set apart from this world, that we are to be marked by Christ in everything we say and do. And so this type of selfless work should serve as a marker to set the church apart from outsiders. This is not how the world operates. The world is full of busybodies. The world is full of people who are getting into your business. We should live better than that. Now, to illustrate this, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 10. Turn turn with me to Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. We see a beautiful illustration of a busybody. To help drive home the application. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And we see Martha serving tables. (laughs) You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Poor Martha. Her name is written just one too many times in the scriptures. What a legacy. I'm sure her intentions were well. We are all prone to this. There are some of us who are prone to volunteer for everything, only so we can complain about how much we've volunteered for There are some of us who volunteer for nothing only so we can complain about those who have volunteered to do the things we aren't willing to volunteer with. We are all prone to this on some level. Wherever you land on that spectrum, the message is this. Work for the Lord. Don't work for yourself and your own pride and your own boasting. We are together in this for the sake of the gospel and the name of Christ. We don't have time to play games around here. It's not about us. It's about Christ and his exaltation in this city and to the ends of the earth. Now, with that practical self-help right there in our faces, we turn our attention then to the final theme, and that is the coming of Christ. As we look to grow more and more into the image of Christ, we are looking to the certainty of Christ's coming. Now, in Thessalonica, there's a misunderstanding of Christ's return. There, there is this, this belief that those who have already died when Christ's return will not be resurrected. And so Paul is writing them to uh, correct and encourage them in regards to this. And he says it there, we do not want you to be uninformed about these things. Now this is kind of a side note here. It is, it is possible for us to be uninformed about certain theological issues. They already were aware of the coming of Christ, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 10. They're waiting for the Son. They had a misunderstanding about some important theology in regards to that, as we'll see here in a moment. But when you have a misunderstanding about theology, don't Google search it. Don't get your theology from the Facebooks and the YouTubes, get your theology from the Bible. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but look what Paul said in verse 15. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. If you want clarity about theological issues, look to the pages of Scripture. But notice what Paul does here in these final verses. He does some theological triage to help with this misunderstanding. Because first of all, this misunderstanding is leading them to, to grieve the death of a loved one, even the death of a loved one who is in Christ, as those who have no hope. If you've ever been to the funeral of someone who did not know the Lord, and the people who are gathered there do not know the Lord, it is a sad and sorrowful thing. But dear brother, dear sister, when we gather as believers at the funeral of a believer, we are sorrowful for ourselves, but we rejoice. There is no grief and death for those who are in Christ. He goes on then to secondly address this idea of those who are asleep and those who are alive. Those who are asleep or those who have already died. Those who are alive are the ones who are still on this earth waiting for Christ's return. And the overarching message, message is this. Whether you're dead in Christ or alive in Christ, you will be with him by faith in his death and resurrection when he comes. Praise God. Now notice these two different people. Those who are asleep, as I mentioned, those are the ones who are already dead. And some thought that those who had died would miss Christ return paul does a really gracious thing by using this word asleep here to emphasize the view that we have of death that it is death is not the end for the believer there is an assurance of the resurrection to come and so while the physical body is sleeping in the grave the spirit of the dead is with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And so for those who are asleep, although resurrection has not come to the dead in Christ yet, and their bodies are in the dirt, if you will, they are with him in his presence, and the promise of resurrection stands. Because Christ conquered the grave, he tells us it's that there in verse 14. Now those who are alive, and in this case he's writing in particular to the church in Thessalonica, are left until the coming of the Lord, and this has not happened yet. And so if you read those verses there, it appears that Paul's language is that he's communicating that the Lord is going to come back in his lifetime. And there's other parts of scripture where we see this and people question that. Atheists love to point this out. I think what what is being communicated here though, is the reality as Christians, we live with the type of anticipation and expectancy that Christ is coming. that we speak in terms when we are still alive that Christ he's coming. It could be tomorrow we have that type of expectation and he wants them to live in that way. The final thing though that he gives them is just an order of events. You can see it there in the text. He says Christ will descend. We see a cry. We see a voice. We see a sound. And then he says first the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are asleep, those who have gone before us will rise. And then we who are alive in Christ or who are left on this earth will be caught up with them in the clouds and we will meet Christ in heaven. That word caught up Is an important word, especially depending on some of your end times theology. That's the word for rapture. Now, what happens immediately after this, we can disagree on. But let me tell you this, friend. This is is a certainty. This will happen. Christ will come back for his church. And so that's of chief uh, priority here. That's of utmost importance. What is Paul telling us here? Christ will come, and it is a fact. And if you are in Christ, whether you're dead in a grave or alive and breathing, you will be with him. It says that he will take his people to be with him, and so we will always be with the Lord. We will be with the Lord forever. That is our hope today, that we, we celebrate, that we sing about, that we consider How do we know these things? Well, again, by his death and resurrection, but also because it's a word from the Lord. I I draw your attention back to verse 15 where he says, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul, in his apostolic authority, has brought about this new revelation to the church. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians as a mystery. This is new information, and he is assuring them and us today of these things. But the last and final thing, that he wants us to consider here is verse 18. Look at it with me. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Christ is coming for his church. Uh, Kids who are here, school's almost over, right? You got a couple weeks left, a few weeks left. And in some ways, the last few weeks of a school year are easy, but You still got to do the work, right? You can't give up now. Your mom, your dad, your teacher might be saying to you, come on, guys, you got this. We're almost there. We're almost to the end. Keep fighting. This is how we encourage each other as the body of Christ, as we just sung about in those songs. Keep fighting, friend. Christ is coming. Our hope is not set in this world. Our hope is set with him, and he will return for us. And so we sing about it. Did you see that? We sung about it this morning, and we should. I'm so thankful for a couple of younger uh, uh, songwriters in our day who have recently written songs about this. One of them says, Won't be long before I'm home. Another one says, we are, we're almost home. We should sing about it. We should talk about it in our homes and at the dinner table and in our Sunday school classes. And when we think about encouraging one another, as we talked about last week, we do so with this eternal perspective. This is just for a moment. Our hope is set in heaven with Christ. And so as we consider holiness... And love and growing in that more and more and consider the hope of Christ's return. What is what's the point of First Thessalonians chapter four? I believe it's this. As we wait, we grow. As we wait for our King's return, we look to become more and more like him in this world. I want to close by reading from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say. He says, In our Christian pilgrimage, it is a good thing, for the most part, to be looking forward. Forward lies the crown, and onward is the goal. Whether it is for hope, for joy, for consolation, or for object of the eyes of faith, looking into the future, we see sin cast out, the body of sin and death destroyed, the soul made perfect and fit to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Looking further yet, the believer's enlightened eyes can see death's river passed, the gloomy stream forded, and the hills of light attained on which stands the celestial city. He sees himself enter within the pearly gates, hailed as more than conqueror, crowned by the hand of Christ, embraced in the arms of Jesus, glorified with him, and made to sit together with him on his throne, even as he has overcome and has sat down with the Father on his throne. The thought of this future may well relieve the darkness of the past and the gloom of the present." The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. Hush, hush my doubts. Death is but a narrow stream, and you will soon have forded it. Time, how short, eternity, how long. Death, how brief, immortality, how endless. The road is so short, I will soon. He then quotes a hymn by William Bathurst that says this: When the world my heart is rending with its heaviest storm of care, my glad thoughts to heaven ascending find a refuge from despair. Faith's bright vision shall sustain me till life's pilgrimage is past. Fears may vex and troubles pain me, I shall reach my home at last. Set your hope in heaven today, friend. Walk in holiness, walk in the love of your master. Let's